Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we're talking to Patrick O'Malley, professor of English at Georgetown University, where he teaches Irish and British literature of the long 19th century as well as critical theory. He is the author of two previous books, Catholicism, Sexual Deviance and Victorian Gothic Culture, published by Cambridge University Press in 2006, and Liffey and Leth, Paramnesiac History in 19th Century Anglo-Ireland, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2017, and also won the Robert Rhodes Prize for Books on Literature from the American Conference for Irish Studies. His new book, published at the very end of last year by the University of Virginia Press, is The Irish and the Imagination of Race, White Supremacy Across the Atlantic in the 19th Century. And if you're interested in reading it, uh, there's a discount code for 40% off the price if you just use the code 10 O'Malley with with UVA Press, uh, which will be valid for a limited time, I understand. Is that correct, Patrick? That's correct. That's what the press sure. has told me. And in general, thanks so much for joining us to, to talk about this book, uh, about a, a somewhat timely topic, I guess. Oh, well, thank you very much, Aidan, for that introduction. And I'm really delighted to be talking with you and um, and, and joining this, this podcast. Sure, sure. Uh, so I guess for a lot of people, maybe more broadly in Irish studies, when they think about questions of whiteness, they might naturally go to, to Noel Ignatiev's book, How the Irish Became White, which I think is now seen as maybe a little bit as an overly polemical book, um, along with maybe Theodore Allen's book, The Invention of the White Race. And there's, there's obviously a lot of literature about this kind of question, right? Did the Irish become white when they moved to America? And there's maybe more more sophisticated, less polemical people like David Rodiger and Nell Irvin Painter who've written on, on this kind of topic. Um, where do you sit your set, situate yourself into that kind of work? Right. Thanks, thanks, Aiden, for for that great uh, introductory question. Um, I think I'd like to actually start by giving a kind of overview of the book, and then and then moving toward that question in particular, since it's one that runs through the entire book. So this book focuses on 
writing primarily from the 1840s to 18 and 1850s, although some earlier and later in the century, that brings together questions of Irishness and race, uh, and in particular, in terms of the ways in which Irishness was brought into a sort of analysis of comparison and contrast with blackness. So I focus on Irish writers like Mariah Edgeworth, Thomas Moore, Dion Boucicault, John Mitchell, on British writers writing about Irishness and race like Matthew Lewis, Thomas Carlyle, Matthew Arnold, and on American writers taking up the question like Hosea Easton, Frederick Douglass, Asenath Nicholson, Edgar Allan Poe, Frank Webb, and William Grayson. And I'm Throughout the book, I'm interested in moments of solidarity, uh, but I'm also interested in ways in which false equivalencies can disrupt that solidarity and obscure the need to acknowledge the specificity of Black experience. Um, and so that br really brings me to your question about Ignatieff and Allen, who are obviously important contexts uh, for the work that I wanted to do here and are in a lot of ways uh, where I started when I began thinking about this book. Um, and so one thing I'd want to say up front in relationship to your question is, is that there are some really important ways in which I think the argument of my book actually aligns with the arguments of Nautiv and Allen, um, in that it's an axiom of this book that race is constructed rather than essential. Um, race in both the 19th century and now is a really incoherent category, um, as any glance at U.S. census designations uh, demonstrates. Um, and racial categories, so what falls inside and outside of them, vary from period to period and culture to culture. Uh, the medievalist scholar Geraldine Hang has a really good description of this, where she points out that pre-modern, even pre-modern racial thinking doesn't require a set of a priori racial categories, but in fact produces, but in fact produces races uh, in, in answer to specific historical imperatives. So in, in that way, I think I'm I'm thinking about the kinds of questions that Ignatieff and Allen ask. That is, that is specifically in in terms of how how is whiteness constituted, how how does whiteness get get imagined, um, and and how does it work particularly in in terms of of Irishness. Um, and and I think that I would agree with them uh, that if there was a period before which the category of racial whiteness wasn't operative. Um, and I, I think I, I think that that's true. Then at some point, every group of people that we, that is within a specific cultural context, think of as white must have become white, as Ignatiev puts it. Um, and it's also, I think, important to recognize that whiteness is itself constructed and not simply a transhistorical normative category. But in this book, and this is where I think I'm trying to shift the conversation a bit, I wanted to press on these on on three questions um, that I think get in the way of jumping from that basic axiom of the construction of race um, at, at that at some point that the whiteness itself is constructed to the sort of argument that Ignatiev uh, made first. Once the category of whiteness emerged, were the Irish in particular excluded from that category? 
in a way that made them broadly analogous to groups understood as non-white and in a kind of unique way as opposed to other uh, white ethnic groups. Secondly, did they, the Irish in particular, become white in the 19th century? Uh, is that the point at which this happened? And thirdly, did they become white in the context of the American racial regimes, whereas they were understood as non-white or that whiteness wasn't similarly operative in the context of the United Kingdom? Um, and I, I think that those are really fair questions. And I think that those are really important questions. And there's been some great work um, engaging with those questions. Uh, part of the issue um, is that the, the whole question of what the term race even means and how it might be different from a term that we use like ethnicity, but that wasn't used in that sense in the 19th century um, is really important. Um, and it's, it's definitely the case uh, that a lot of the language that we use for race crystallized in the 19th century. And because of that, there is a sort of flurry of questions like, wait, are the Irish Caucasians? How do we know? Uh, what does that even mean? Um, and it's also uh, the, the case that the brutality of the 19th century American racial state was fundamentally different from the situation in the United Kingdom, both culturally and legally, um, which is something that Frederick Douglass famously observed in the 1840s. Um, and finally, I want to be clear that I'm in no way discounting the horrible conditions of life for many Irish people in 19th century Ireland, conditions produced by and sustained through colonial violence, um, including the famine. Um, and stigma and discrimination certainly continued in both the United Kingdom and the United States. But while we need to acknowledge that violence, the, the oppression that marks Irish and Irish American history, I I think that we need to be careful about analogizing the situations by suggesting that the 19th century Irish were treated or understood as though they were black. And that is, I wanna avoid a misleading conflation between the forms of discrimination and hardship experienced by the 19th century Irish in both the United Kingdom and the United States and the racist violence enacted against black people both during and after the legal inst uh, institution of American slavery. And I, I think that if we sort of casually ask about what you know why the Irish needed to become white, while that doesn't necessarily suggest that the Irish situation was cognate to the condition of black persons, it sometimes tends to suggest that. Um, and and that's what I want to avoid. Um, it seems to me specifically to disentangle those, uh, to insist on the specificity of black suffering and black resilience. And to show that even if 19th century Irish writers claimed that they were being treated in the same way that enslaved black people were, we need to understand differences. And I think that, in, that some of that misleading analogizing slips into the work of scholars like Ignatieff and Allen, um, and some, although certainly not all, post-colonial Irish studies that has been produced in relationship to or built on that work. Um, and... That's where I think the, as you pointed out, the sort of work of amazing scholars like Painter and Rodiger and and O'Neill and and I would also add uh, David Lloyd and Mary Mullen and Amy Martin and Alicia Walters uh, has been incredibly generative and inspiring to mm -hmm. me, um, and that's and that's in the spirit that's this sort of the spirit of this book. So I might ask a <clears throat> another question about a, a a thing that runs through your entire book is. You're, you're making a, a 
in some ways a quite complicated argument about how genre, like literary genre and race in terms of a, as a social category, not necessarily that they are conflated, but that they, they are analogous to each other's cautiously in some ways, um, or that they reproduce each other in some ways. Could you kind of talk us through that? What exactly is the argument? Because I, I, I don't want to kind of do injustice to it by trying to reproduce it myself. Uh, thank you for that question. And you're absolutely right that that is, I think, a, a, a really important part of what I'm doing in this book, although in a couple of different ways. I think I would say... Um, Part of the complexity uh, is that there are maybe two principal ways that I'm thinking about the intertwining of literary genre and race in this book. And the first is a sort of structuring framework for the book. Um, and this was a way of organizing materials, I would say, that helped me think about how to put Irish and American writers and uh, literary works into conversation with each other. And I'm a literature guy. I like thinking about the work that literary form, uh, including genre, or sometimes maybe more particularly mode, does. My first book was on the Victorian Gothic. Uh, so I'm interested in thinking about the relationships between forms and, and cultural effect. So I started thinking about categories that by the middle of the 19th century had played key roles literary categories that, that had played key roles in Irish literary nationalism, some in expressly iconic ways and some more tangentially. And in my book, that list includes categories like the national tale, the bardic epic, the gothic, the stage melodrama, the sentimental novel, the polemical tract. And I was interested in what happened when Irish writers, particularly Irish nationalist writers, deployed these genres to write about race in the American context. So these had been genres that had become really sort of central to Irish nationalist literary expression uh, by the middle of the 19th century. So what happens when they're kind of like moved out of, of that world and into a different world? And what struck me was that they often seem to trip up on this question of 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 analogy uh, between these uh, between these categories. And I want to say I would say that one of the one of the sort of important terms in the book I I take from uh, the Afro pessimist scholar and writer Frank B. Wilderson. And he's got a term sort of like the ruse of analogy, sort of like the ways in which analogy causes us to think about things that are fundamentally different as 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 comparable um, or equivalent or or conf or conflatable. Um, and so I was interested in sort of like this ruse of analogy once you once you move a genre from one one place to another. And I started to wonder, um, whether we might think of that as both a kind of intellectual and moral failure and a formal failure. That is that the genres through which this early 19th century rhetorical fight for Irish rights in the United Kingdom, um, the, the genres in which that, that fight was waged were understood in a kind of too rigid way or too comparable way or too transferable way um, for these, writer, these, these writers to effectively translate these liberationist convictions into the context of the American race-based ch child enslavement state and the white supremacy that 
produced it and outlived it. So, so there's a kind of literal and literary understanding of genre and its relationship to 19th century underst understandings of race. I mean, it is is I'm I'm I've structured the book around particular literary um, forms of expression. Um, mm -hmm. And 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 formal um, categories, but as I was working on the book, it, I realized that there's a second and, and probably more fundamental way in which genre and race speak to each other, and that's that they both name ideologically inflected categories that are culturally constructed and that deep uh, and that are deeply influential on in the ways that we understand the world around us. Uh, they. They articulate and they enforce really powerful forms of relationality. They make us think about analogy um, in in particular kind of ways that that I that I wanted to disrupt um, or or think about disrupting in in this book. Um, so on this, I, I would want to say that this was something that. Um, I started reading about more as I was already writing the book and had already decided to think about structuring the book in terms of literary genre. And this was something where um, scholars in, um, in critical race studies and, and particularly scholars of color really helped me think about the ways in which um, categories of race and categories of literary genre um, speak to each other. And these are our scholars like um, Yogita Goyal, uh, Brigitte Fielder, Mark Jung, Jung among others. Um, and at the same time, um, a scholar like uh, Joe Rezek uh, has done some fantastic work in exposing the ways in which print forms in the late 18th century and, and early 19th century uh, were themselves increasingly racialized. Um, and, and so I started to think about that, right? To, to sort of like think about category um, as, as both enabling, uh, but also uh, potentially problematic uh, if, if, we, if we start to assume that we can conflate across um, uh, across in this way, across difference in this way, um, and so those so those are the kind of the, the the two the two kind of ways I I was thinking about this, and I guess uh, to that I'd maybe add a third, uh, which is the historical and the sort of historical development of in the nineteenth century of of understanding linguistic expression as as being related to racial categories. Um, and, uh, and, and there, you know, for example, we might think about the ways in which a, a term like Indo-European shifts from naming a linguistic category, uh, a kind of, a kind of genre of language, um, to, to naming a racial category. Um, so that's the larger kind of like theoretical and historical argument about the relationship between genre and race. Um, and I, I think what I came to believe and, and want to argue is is that the particular that that these these various ways of thinking about the relationship of genre and race are are, are themselves in conversation with each other. That is that the particular literary genres and modes that I focus on are salient to the Irish imagination of race in part because of these larger linguistic um, 
literary and historical structures. Mm-hmm. So I might um, dig into maybe one one of the specific genres that you start with early on in the book, which is is um, Gothic Irish literature, um, and and you focus on that by looking at obviously questions of Irishness and race, but then looking specifically at, at the work of Edgar Allan Poe. And on the one hand, I think some of that is quite familiar, I think, to, to an Irish studies readership, right? That 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 the Gothic novel is an Irish type of novel and that it is a very racialized novel. Edgar Allan Poe seems a little bit less familiar, maybe. How does he fit into this? So, right. So yeah. one thing um, that I've been seeing more of lately in uh, in Irish studies, but also in American studies, is more attention paid to Poe's ancestral Irishness. Um, his paternal grandfather was born in Ulster uh, in the mid-18th century um, and migrated to Baltimore. Um, and one place that I would point to uh, for this is uh, Mary Burke's really excellent recent mm-hmm. book on race, politics in Irish America. Um, and I know that you know this book well because you've interviewed her on this podcast. Uh, and Burke... I think very compellingly identifies a category of what she calls Scots-Irish Gothic uh, as a particular uh, instantiation of this kind of like broader question of the relationship of of Irishness to the to the Gothic. Um, and she includes Poe um, centrally uh, in that category of Scots-Irish Gothic, but also other figures that I think um, it, it's really revelatory uh, to me to put together um, in this way as she did. Um, and those include Charles Brockton Brown, Henry James. Um, I would say in in some in some ways uh, John Mitchell um, into the, into this category. Um, so so on the one hand, we could think of Poe in relationship to a kind of ancestral Irishness uh, rather than just being a kind of, quintessential, unmarked American writer. Um, Then on top of that, um, Poe seems to have been sort of obsessed with Irish literature. Uh, He he was reading a lot. He read a lot of Irish literature. um, And as we might expect, he was particularly interested in what we might think of as sort of like Irish genre literature. that that he could think of in relationship to the kind of work that he was doing. So he satirically refers to Charles Robert Maturin's Melmoth the Wanderer um, in his preface to his 1831 collection of poems. And he had a real reverence for Thomas More as well. Um, reportedly, the last book that Poe read before his death was More's Irish Melodies. Um, and this made me think that Irishness uh, maybe is more relevant to Poe uh, than than we've often sort of assumed um, when we think of him just just as kind of like a, a, an American writer or, or a Southern um, writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for my chapter on the the Gothic and that then moves to Poe, I focus on the Goldbug in particular, uh, which takes place in South Carolina. It includes a central black character, and it's been the focus of some important analyses in terms of Poe and race by Toni Morrison um, and and many others. And what hooked me um, 
on the gold bug for this project was the fact that Poe uses an epigraph to the story from the 18th century Irish playwright, uh, Arthur Murphy. Uh, so my question, my question in the chapter is actually very much like the question that you just asked me, what does Irishness have to do with this tale of mystery, encryption, and American race? Why is Murphy um, the epigraph uh, to to this to this chapter? And and does and in a way does does Irishness in that in 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 that sense matter um, uh, in this uh, for this story? Um, and then in as I'm writing a about this one, you know, there's the there's actually an added twist that Poe misidentifies the source of his epigraph. Uh, it is in fact Murphy, but he, but he gets the play wrong, um, and that got me thinking then about mistranslations between similar seemingly similar things, failures of alignment, misleading decodings, sort of like ruses of analogy, um, which are actually at the heart of my argument about the the treachery of analogy between Irishness and Blackness in 19th century studies and in the, the way that we might think about how, how the Gothic is functioning. Um, mm -hmm. But, but generally in the, in, by, by the middle of the 19th century, but, but also in particular in a, in a writer like Poe. Mm -hmm. So I might, I might move on then to the, to the next chapter in your book. Um, you, you have a, uh, you talk about a, a man called William Grayson, a, a congressman turned poet not as well known a figure um, as Poe, I think it's fair to say. And you focus on a, a 1500 line epic poem he wrote called The Hireling and the Slave. Um, and as you point out, the poem is, is not exactly high literature. Um, but what does a poem like this reveal about all of these questions of genre, race and Irishness that you're exploring? So um, I'd like to begin my answer to that question by saying I'm not going to make any claims for Grayson's poetic abilities. Um, um, and his racial views are worse. Um, for quite a while, um, he was erroneously credited with coining the term the master race. Um, and the, the Oxford English Dictionary still actually lists this poem, The Hireling and the Slave, as a key instance of that usage, although it's now found in earlier uh, appearance. Um, in the mid 1850s, the the poem, um, perhaps unfortunately, didn't simply disappear. Uh, it went into a number of editions. It got some critical attention, um, and in some ways, it's actually the banality of the poem, both in its conventional literary form and in its um, the banality of its of its racism that's both most telling and and I think most horrifying, um, in part because it expresses a sort of bog standard form of American anti-black racism, and um, for Grayson in this poem, the Irish Irish precarity is brought into conversation um, with. Uh, with the question of black enslavement, um, but it's brought into conversation in a way that expresses the fundamental difference uh, be in in Grayson's argument um, be between white labor, including white Irish labor, and and black enslaved labor. So within Grayson's 
racial system, which again, I, I think is banal, you know, in a way that, that makes it symptomatic um, or telling within Grayson's racial system, the Irish who are oppressed, discriminated against subject to labor violations and all kinds of things don't need to become white. There's, there's no need for them in, in Grayson's vision to become white. They are white. Um, and that that is the, the, the assumption um, of the poem. The, it's the whole point um, of, of, of the poem. Um, and that's actually not, I think, a new development in the in the 1750 in the 1850s. <clears throat> Grayson's title, "The Hireling and the Slave," is taken from the third verse of the Star, Sp the Star Spangled Banner. Um, um, it establishes a division of forms of labor across a white-black dichotomy um, that is sort of absolute in a in a way. Um, we might remember that Irish immigrants were always understood to be free white persons in the terms of the 1790 Naturalization Act uh, in, the, in the United States. Um, and here's another place where I think that Rodiger's work is important. Rodiger writes about the language of, of the hireling and the slave uh, in the 19th century. And he analyzes this complex relationship between race and class, between racialization and labor. Um, and in that, I'd say he's he's like rather than unlike um, Alan and Ignatiev, although in a more nuanced way. Um, and I think I would largely agree um, that the development of capitalism is fundamental to the modern construction of race, uh, that that modern understandings of race don't precede capital, but are produced by it. Um, and that's also how I read the argument of um, Karen Fields and Barbara Fields in, in what I think is their really amazing book, Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life. Um, but to say that race is constructed as a sort of ruse of capital doesn't mean that the effects of it are comparable across different forms of racialization, or that anti-Blackness can be reduced to a question of social class or that Irishness is analogous to Blackness. And, and Grayson's, Grayson's poems, I think, make demonstrate that, that point. For Grayson, the whiteness of the Irish is not something that they need to achieve, but is why their precarity and their suffering matters to him in a way that Black precarity and suffering don't matter to him. Um, it it it's the predicate uh, uh, for his understanding um, of of Irish precarity, um, and uh, to me, it's it's actually a sort of interesting and symptomatic aspect of the poem, and in um, in that in how invested in Irishness it is, um, and Grayson represents his interest in Irishness as not just limited to Irish America but as a sort of transatlantic cosmopolitanism. Uh, he alludes to the famine. He alludes to colonial oppression of the Irish in Ireland. He quotes Thomas Carlyle on Ireland um, in Chikora, which he publishes a sort of pendant poem to the hireling and the slave. Um, he, he invokes the, the Ocean poems as a kind of Celtic anal, uh, antecedent for his own work. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think that Grayson's 
poems are relevant to, to, to my book and kind of like thinking about genre and generic tr transformation um, because they not only transform Celtic modes into American verse, but in part by doing that, by tr by bringing those, what, what Grayson sees is these Celtic modes into uh, the, the American literary uh, context. Um, he's arguing for a sort of transatlantic master raceness um, that is explicitly predicated on Irish whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, I think that I think is this is the sort of like key reason why um, why Grayson matters um, to this to this mm -hmm. book. So as as you're kind of across the whole book, as you're talking through all these problems of of Irishness and race and how uh, conceptions of Irish whiteness move back and forth across the Atlantic, it often seems that that Frederick Douglass is almost like a recurring character within the narrative of the book. Um, and I'm wondering, like, for you, what does he reveal about these questions? But also, what have people gotten wrong about him? There's often a lot of a lot of this kind of analogizing that's quite simplistic that you're critiquing that people engage in when they talk about Douglas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Douglas is central to to this book. Um, central to basically every chapter of the of the book, I would say. And as I think you're suggesting, there's a way in which he's also central to the high, how the Irish became white argument um, in for a number of reasons. Um, and and uh, and I and I wanted to think about those. Um, there's a famous passage from an 1846 letter from Douglas to William Lloyd Garrison, while Douglas was writing from Ireland. He was doing a lecture tour in, in Ireland. Um, and in this letter to Garrison, he Douglas said, said he's sort of astonished by the way that he's treated like an actual human being in Ireland uh, with all the deference and the kindness and respect with which white people are treated. Uh, and there's another famous passage um, in My Bondage and My Freedom where he writes that the singing of enslaved people in the Southern United States uh, was unlike anything uh, that he'd ever heard, except the singing of the um, of the, of the Irish uh, during during the famine uh, when when he was in Ireland. And then back in the United States, he repeatedly notes that Irish immigrants and Irish Americans offer uh, some of the most virulent anti-black racism of any. Um, any American groups or or immigrant groups, uh, so so that can that can easily uh, look like a sort of narrative of the Irish taking on whiteness only once they reach the United States. Um, but I wanted to complicate that a bit, or or think more about that, or or, con or contextualize it um, by by noting, among other things, that his point in the letter to Garrison isn't that the Irish in Ireland weren't white um it's and in fact he he calls the irish white in that same pa passage um uh when he's when he's writing writing about the irish who me who he talks to it, the, the the point there um is that white people actually can treat black people with kindness and respect uh not that they're not white um in in doing that um and he actually wrote Quite a bit more about Irish people in Ireland um, than than those 
two passages. Um, and I wanted to look at those other instances. And one of the things that I was struck by um, what, is that there, there was a kind of occurrence that that um, that shows up uh, in in accounts of Douglas's tour in Ireland uh, that shows up with a kind of depressing regularity uh, in the reports from his lecture tours in Ireland uh, is that Irish people kept on coming up to him and thanking him uh, for his words and then telling him that they were particularly appreciative of of his lectures because the Irish were also enslaved. And Douglas keeps on having to say, like again and again, there are these reports where he's like, no, in fact, you aren't enslaved, right? That yes, your precarity matters. Yes, I want to support um, pe people who are discriminated against um, in all kinds of ways, but there are terrible forms of anti-Irish discrimination that aren't the same as the enslavement of black people in the United States. And that is, he keeps on, not only in the United States, but also in Ireland, ha having to address wh what I'm seeing as these sort of forms of false equivalency, right? And and I'm wanting to foreground those passages as well. Um, and, to, and to look at the ways in which I think Douglas is incredibly astute about both thinking about how coalitions can be forged between different groups of people, but then also why the differences between the historical conditions of those different groups of people are important to keep at the forefront of our minds while we're forging those coalitions. Mm -hmm. You end um, with two figures um, that are, are fairly well known, at least their names are fairly well known to Irish study scholars, even if their works are not, John Mitchell and Dean Busico. And Mitchell is almost, takes the complete opposite tack of like no no desire whatsoever to build coalitions with African-Americans. I mean, he's both shockingly racist and I think it's fairly well known that that he was shockingly racist. How does he compare with Busico? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that question because it's actually the seed from which the book sprouted. Um, in my previous book, um, which was about 19th century Irish literary historiography and the problem of accounting for unresolved historical violence within the framework of literary genres uh, that seemed to demand closure, I had a section um, about Busico's play The Vampire in relationship to the famine. And I briefly mentioned Mitchell in that context as well. And while it wasn't something that belonged in that book or that I had time to think about in that book, I became a bit obsessed with what seemed to me to be uncanny parallels between the travels of these two Irish Protestant writers. So both arrive in New York City in the last months of 1853. In 1855, Busico temporarily moves to, to the enslaving state of Louisiana and Mitchell becomes a farmer in the enslaving state of Tennessee. In 1858, they're both in Washington, DC. Then they're both back in New York at various overlapping points in the early 1870s. Um, both wrote in, in really different ways about American slavery, although in quite different genres, both considered the American racial state in relationship to Ireland. Um, and 
both ultimately seem to me to sort of like get some things wrong about the relationship or non-relationship between Irishness and Blackness um, in ways that I found somewhere between intellectually lazy and morally appalling, but in incredibly different ways from each other. So that so that was actually the knot that I that I was sort of like trying to untangle, trying to pick at that that started this this book. Um, and one thing that they kept coming back to was this difference in genre um, between the way that they were thinking and the ways that genre shapes how we see and understand relationality between forms and categories. So if your genre is the political polemic, as Mitchell's predominantly was, the the sort of like ruse of analogy works in a certain kind of way. If your genre is stage melodrama like Boussicos, it works in a different way. I also think that you could come at this from, from the other direction. Um, David Theo Goldberg distinguishes between two, two types, what, what he identifies as two types of racial thinking that he calls the naturalist and the historicist types of racial thinking. And, and for Goldberg, the naturalist mode goes from Hobbes to Carlyle. Um, and that's where I'd probably put Mitchell and the historicist mode goes from it goes from Locke to Mill. And that's where I would kind of like think of Boussico. I, I'm not 100% convinced that those labels that I'm taking from Goldberg really work for Mitchell and Boussico, at least as I'm thinking about them here, but the but the way of thinking about these 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 sort of like generic ways of thinking, um, it, it was that was important to me. Um, so so Mitchell, you're absolutely right. It, in a way, kind of like fail utterly fails to see um, the possibility of coalition between Irish nationalism and and anti-slavery activism, um, the, people like Douglas and others. But he absolutely sees, and he argues for, um, an analogy uh, between Irish nationalism and the Confederacy. Um, that and, and he presents absolutely um, his argument for the continuation of race-based chattel slavery in the United States as a version of his Irish nationalism. Um, they aren't, he doesn't seem to present these as different, um, as different arguments, um, but, but as the same argument. So he is, he is, he is thinking within a kind, a kind of like weirdly generic way about, about analogies be between things. Um, so I've, in in the book, I I tend to present Mitchell as a as appealing to what I see as as sort of like um, genre as as schema uh, as a sort of schematic relationship between things and Boussico as as thinking about genre as as a particular kind of genre as sympathy uh, also about relationality uh, between things um, and and it struck me that in these two different writers, kind of like types of thinking about race in these different ways are in some ways amenable or or produce particular generic forms. So it's not just that Mitchell happened to write about race in the form of political polemic and Boussico happened to write about it in the form of the stage melodrama. Those forms fit the kinds of arguments that each 
makes, but at the same time, they also shape and delimit and and restrict the possibility of these arguments. So Mitchell starts to see everything, including people, in terms of oppositional categories, Ireland, England, the Confederacy, the Union, whiteness, blackness. And he draws the schematic equivalencies and he, that line those categories up. So he opposes the Union of Great Britain and Ireland, and he similarly opposes the American U Union. Um, the, the Confederacy is the Ireland of the United States, Therefore, enslaving human beings becomes for him a form of Irish nationalism. Black people, by virtue of their blackness, are for him subject to slavery, whereas Irish people, by virtue of their whiteness, deserve self-determination. And as you say, it's shockingly racist, but it's also, I think, symptomatic. And then, I mean, your question about Busico, I, I think, is a really good one. And kind of like, how, like, how is Busico like this or how is Busico different? And I think that Busico is different. Um, and in my account of Busico, the, the, the chapter focuses primarily on Busico's play with, with, a, with its title that I think um, is deeply uncomfortable to, to us now and should be uncomfortable to us, um, the title The Octoroon, um, which he wrote in, in relationship to his time in Louisiana. That that I think for Busico, the key term is sympathy, which is a term that he himself describes and theorizes to some extent a number of years later in an essay called The Art of Dramatic Composition. Um, now, he's nowhere near the kind of forthright, even self-congratulatory racist that, that someone like Mitchell is, but, but he's a pretty slippery character, I, I'd say, in terms of actual political commitment. And he plays both sides of the abolition debate, depending on where he was and what argument he thought would sell more tickets uh, to, to his plays. Um, and sympathy, I'd say, has, has a racial component in terms of who's inside and who's outside, the circle of identification that makes sympathy possible. And my argument about the play is that Busico presents Zoe, who's, who's the central enslaved character in the play. He presents Zoe's individual fate as tragic, but he's ultimately unable to argue that the enslavement of Black people in general is wrong. Um, and that's where I see these kind of like two different ways of thinking um, causing problems or causing challenges for both Mitchell and Busico. So while Mitchell is so blinded by abstraction that he can't see human suffering, um, and, and the human suffering that his own arguments uh, are advancing, Busico can't get beyond the individual object of sympathy. Um, and he presents, so he presents what's happening to Zoe's tragic, not really because she's one eighth black, but because she's seven eighths white. Um, and so he's also in a way unable, I think, to construct a truly ethical relationship between Irishness and blackness, uh, but, he's, but he's not a moral monster. Um, like, like Mitchell. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, maybe just as a, as a brief kind of con concluding question, I know your book is obviously quite tightly focused on uh, mainly on literature from the 1840s and 1850s, but, but where, what would you see as the after history of all this? Where do these politics, where does this politics and literature of, of white Irish grievance go later in the 19th century? And as we come into the 20th? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, you're absolutely right that the focus of the book is primarily the 1840s and 1850s, and I wanted to keep it in a relatively tight historical moment um, for for a number of reasons, um, not least, of course, uh, because of the uh, migration of Irish people to the United States um, during and after uh, in after the famine, um, because of the the lead up to this the American Civil War, um, because there is was a lot of uh, sort of anthropological theorizing about race going on um, in these in these decades. Uh, so so there was a lot there's there's a lot about these about this particular period um, that I think it's it's worth slowing down and thinking about. Um, but the patterns that I look at here certainly didn't stop with the Civil War. Uh, an early title uh, for the book was From Last Conquest to Lost Cause. Um, and that was drawing a line uh, from Mitchell's Irish nationalist polemic, uh, in, in particular his his book, The Last Conquest of Ireland, perhaps, um, uh, to the rhetoric of neo-Confederate nostalgia uh, represented by the lost cause. And... Um, I'm, I'm fascinated. There, there, there are some things that I do um, mention in the in the book that that move a little bit beyond um, this period. I'm fascinated by the fact that Oscar Wilde, uh, during his 1882 lecture tour of the United States and Canada, visited the aging Jefferson Davis in Mississippi. Um, he Wilde was apparently reading Davis's Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government uh, during his travels, and he expressed a desire to meet with Davis. Um, and after the visit, he was quoted by a newspaper saying that the case of the South in the Civil War was, to my mind, much like that of Ireland today. Uh, that just se that seems to me a, a really interesting sort of like um, aftermath of these kinds of questions. Um, and it's a rather different representation of the relationship between Irish anti-colonial activism and the American racial state than we often imagine. I have a sort of coda to the book in which I look at Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind um, in, in the early 20th century uh, as a reconstruction of Irish nationalism in the United States that I read as explicitly predicated on white supremacy. Um, but it's also the case beyond what sort of like the content of the book itself. Um, it's the case that I started writing this book in a kind of horror at the ways in which Irish precarity was once again now being mobilized by far-right groups um, as a tool of anti-Black racism. Um, the reappearance of the Irish slavery um, canard, which shows up in the 19th century, um, especially among young Irelanders like, like Mitchell, uh, seems to have again, becomes central to white supremacist propaganda uh, in a number of ways. And the false equivalency that undergirds that myth is, I'd argue, a modern instance of the ruse of analogy that I'm tracing in the mid-19th century. And I wanted to think that, think about that, but also call it out um, and to be, to, to be careful about, about where, about where this goes. Um, but I also wanted to make another point about this, um, and this is a sort of like disciplinary um, point um, in a way, and that is that while the alt-right Irish slavery meme is 
of course, based in shoddy conflation and outright forgery of the past. One thing that struck me as I started writing this book was that I could also see its basis in some actually quite good and influential Irish studies scholarship of the of the 1980s and 1990s. Um, some of that is the work of labor historians like Alan and Ignatiev, um, which we, with which we started this conversation. Uh, and some of that is the work um, of post-colonial Irish studies folk. And I want to be clear that what alt-right trolls are doing with that work is a distortion and a misrepresentation of important theoretical accounts of Irish racialization. But it also occurred to me that it should be a wake-up call to us in the academy, to those of us in the academy who care about racial justice, to maybe be wary of making our own somewhat under-theorized equivalencies uh, between the experiences of Irish people and, and those of Black people, um, even if those equivalencies are well-intended. Um, that we can build coalitions, scholarly coalitions, um, both inside and outside the academy. We can build coalitions for justice across race without erasing the specificity of Black experience through analogy. Um, and so one thing that researching and writing this book has taught me, and I guess as we're closing up, one thing that I'd most like to share here is that I think that when we in 19th century Irish literary studies are writing about race and racialization of Irishness. We we need to start listening more to writers and scholars in African American studies and in Black studies more broadly. So we yes, we need to read more of Douglas than a couple of short passages that compare Black and Irish precarity and deprivation, and we need to read more uh, 19th century Black writers on this question. Um, Ringgold Ward, um, Hosea Easton. Uh, there, there are others. We need to read what um, Harriet Jacobs wrote uh, about Mitchell, uh, for example, about and amongst other things. So we, yes, we do need to um, be be reading more of of these nineteenth century writers. Um, if, but then also um, contemporary work. If anyone has the chance, uh, try to see a production of Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and an Octoroon, um, which is both a homage to and a critique of Busico's play, um, and which I think is a brilliant and absolutely spit take funny um, analysis of race and genre and the grip of the Victorian past on the present. Uh, so if you have the opportunity, see that. Um, I would say, yes, of course, we need to continue to read these foundational post-colonial and class studies texts of the 1990s. Um, but we also need to be reading Saidiya Hartman, Sylvia Winter, Vanessa Dickerson, Christina Sharp. And we need to get ourselves out of our own ruses of analogy and, and start building ethical coalitions that acknowledge fundamental differences of experience, even as they strive to build a more just world across them. There are some great scholars in our studies who are doing that now. We need to read them as well. And that at least is my hope. Great. Well, as, as I think I said at the very start, as what you're saying here points to, this is an incredibly timely book uh, and a very important intervention into Irish literary studies. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed talking with you today.